Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's program features a special seminar on the war in Ukraine. It was held in our offices in Cambridge on March 2nd. It features analysis of the war by four MIT faculty. Dr. Maria Grinberg, a professor of political science whose expertise includes conflict economies. Dr. Barry Posen, a professor of political science who focuses on military and grand strategy. Dr. Carol Savitz, a Russia expert and special advisor to SSP and Dr. Elizabeth Wood, a Russia specialist and professor of history at MIT. Good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to the MIT Security Studies Program. I'm Taylor Fravel, uh, Director of Security Studies here at MIT, and a warm welcome uh, to our special panel on understanding uh, the war in Ukraine after uh, sort of approximately one week. I'm really delighted uh, to be able uh, to sort of share uh, this opportunity with some really terrific colleagues. Um, I'll give very short introductions and then we'll just uh, dive uh, right into it. Uh, I've asked uh, everyone to speak for you know, five minutes or so, just some initial framing thoughts on different aspects of, of, sort of what's ha happened so far in Ukraine, and then we'll just open it up for a much broader discussion um, with everyone uh, who's in the room. And so uh, to my uh, far right is Elizabeth Wood, who's a professor of history here at MIT and also co-directs the MISTI Russia program. Um, to my uh, closer uh, right is Barry Posen, uh, board professor of board, board international professor, of board something professor of political <laughs> science. <laughs> More importantly, Barry uh, to all of us. Um, um, also a longtime member and former director of the Security Studies Program. To my immediate left is Maria Grunberg, an assistant professor of political science at MIT and member of SSB. And to my farther left, uh, although perhaps not politically, as Carol Savitz, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, who we'll find out soon, um, uh, who, who is a, a senior advisor uh, to the MIT Security Studies Program. And so um, I'm sort of in the order which we'll speak, I'm going to sort of go, I guess, out in, so uh, Elizabeth and then to Carol, to Barry, to Maria, uh, to sort of cover uh, sort of Putin's motivations, uh, Russia's goals, what we've learned so far in the battlefield, and then what we might uh, learn uh, in terms of the role that uh, economic sanctions and economic uh, statecraft uh, are playing. And so uh, once we're done with the opening remarks, I'll keep a running list of uh, folks who want to jump in on the conversation. And I'll, I don't recognize everyone in the room, which is great. I uh, means we've gotten some new folks. Uh, and we're also wearing masks. I may just eventually start pointing at you uh, to identify you. But uh, please do uh, raise your hands high in the beginning uh, so that I can uh, see them. So with that, um, Elizabeth, over to you. Sounds Elizabeth great. Wood. Uh, first, let me check. Can everybody hear me? Yes? Good, good. Okay. So um, I, I have to say uh, that I think I got the hardest task. Um, <laughs> Putin's motivations are a complex bundle of many things, and they are one of the biggest problems that everyone has had in responding to him. If we knew exactly what his motivations were, it would be much easier to respond to them. Officially, uh, most recently, they, he told Macron that they were putting three, forward three demands um, in the brief negotiations that they had 
between the Ukrainians and the Russians at the Belarusian border two days ago. Um, those three demands were that Ukraine recognize Crimea as Russian, that Ukraine denazify itself, and that Ukraine be declared neutral vis-a-vis uh, uh, NATO. Um, the problem with these three uh, demands is that um, the Crimea one is, is really uh, trivial in the larger scale of what Russia clearly wants. Um, denazification of Ukraine is senseless since there is no evidence of Nazi behavior. Um, they have a Jewish president, as many of you know, and uh, this is uh, just a complete... Um, uh, fantasy on Putin's part, and it's clear from his speech last summer and his other speeches that he's, that he's um, got a bigger beef uh, with Ukraine. Ukrainian neutrality is the one that makes sense, um, and I think we, sh we as a panel can have a very interesting discussion. I recently happened through MIT to be speaking with some Austrians, um, and Austrian neutrality was very successful from 1955 to the present. Um, the Finns will tell you they don't want Finlandization, but the, the Austrians will tell you that, that neutrality worked. So uh, it's not clear that either the Ukrainians or the Russians really want this, but I think we as a, a panel and as observers can certainly think about that issue. I think the other thing to think about with Putin, though, is what he's not saying, what he's implying, what he's saying in these extremely long speeches. Clearly, um, He's expressing a great deal of emotion. Um, I would call it rage at Ukraine for daring to go an independent route. Um, I think the independence is not so much as it's usually framed in the West about democracy as it is about economics. He wanted Ukraine to be the jewel in his Eurasian Union back in 2000, starting in 2011. Um, 2014, it became clear that they were not going to be that jewel in the Eurasian Union, but um, he, he clearly was very upset with them. Yesterday, I heard a high uh, Ukrainian minister who is in the Zelensky government arguing, and I hadn't heard this one before, that another a specific uh, rage of Putin's may be with Zelensky for his clamping down, the, the Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, for clamping down on some of the Russian and pro-Russian oligarchs in Ukraine, specifically Sergei Mikvechuk, who is under house arrest um, he's been, uh, Zelensky has been, I would argue, forced to try to clean house a bit. He's got a lot of corruption and a lot of it is pro-Russian corruption. So there may be specific uh, anger about that. Um, in my long years of Putin watching, it has also become very clear to me that there is a certain megalomania. Um, people say, is he reassembling the Soviet Union? I'm not sure he's reassembling the Soviet Union per se or Imperial Russia per se, but it is clear uh, that there, uh, he would like to be one of the czars known by the title The Great. Um, for anybody who's interested in Russian history, the, the three Russian czars who were called The Great were Ivan III, who was the grandfather of Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great, and they were the greatest, uh, they expanded the most territory, they added the most territory. Um, uh, so, um, I, I, and it, the evidence for this is, is that they put up a statue to Vladimir the Great, who is not usually called the Great, uh, the 10th century ruler in the center of Moscow, that's 50 feet tall, um, uh, in 2015. After, yeah, they, they put it up after 2014, after the taking of Crimea. So, somebody is massaging 
uh, to put it nicely, Putin's ego and saying, if you add more territory, you will be the great ruler. It's clear also that that's been his actions. If you look at it, he comes to power in 1999, he takes Chechnya, brutally. And I think you know, we, we've, we've all been thinking this war might look like his, uh, the Georgian war, which is five days, quick bloodless. Or the war might look like Crimea um, in the space of a week. They had, they had massively moved in. The playbook is very clear. Move in massively. I think he learned it from the Americans in 1999. Um, ma- massive uh, response over, or, and, and, then, and then you take back the little pieces one by one. Um, clearly, this is not quite working out as he might have planned. And then the other question is why now? I think there's a sense of opportunism, and this is, uh, you know, I'm not original. Lots of people have said this, that it may be in part because he perceives the West as weak and Biden. President Biden as weak in particular because he's a conciliator, because he's, a, he's trying to reconcile forces that, that Putin may think are too far uh, apart. What's tricky, there's a lot of unknown variables right now, and I, I'm sure my colleagues will speak to these. One is what's, what's happening with the Russian troops on the ground. We are hearing reports of, of uh, them surrendering, we're puncturing their own gas tanks, um, running out of gas. There's a lot of military questions that I'm sure Barry will, will talk to us about. But there's also a danger that the Russians will out of desperation, because they don't have a clear end game, go to what I would argue is the Chechenization of this crime, this, uh, or the Syrianization, brutal attacks on civilians with no regard. They didn't, they didn't need a casus belli. They didn't wait for a real uh, thing. So they're clearly not going to be bound by, by concern about, uh, about casualties. So in sum, to keep it brief, um, I would argue that it's a toxic cocktail one part, um, megalomania, vidigamania in Russian it's called. One part, uh, his KGB background, we know he had a, has a lowered sense of fear. This is what the KGB, he was criticized for when he was in the KGB. He said that in his own memoirs in 1999. Um, that lack of fear is also a lack of compassion, unfortunately. Doesn't care about civilians. Um, and one part grudges against the Ukrainians in general, and Zelensky in particular, and one part overconfidence, thinking that he and his nation can ride out the sanctions because they've got the, the money in the bank and because the West is divided. Um, he, of course, he knew there would be a reaction, but I don't think he expected the reaction he got. So. Great. Thanks, Lovis. That was perfect. Uh, Carol, over yeah. to you. Carol, right. save it. All right. First of all, thanks for organizing the session. I think it's really... Um, important, and I just want to keep in our minds as we're all talking about the geopolitics and the military aspects that there are people's lives at stake here. I've been texting with friends in Ukraine, academic friends, and it's just a horrific situation, and I don't want to lose sight of that. Uh, Taylor asked me to talk about Putin's goals, so I don't know what's different between Putin's motivations and Putin's goals, but I have a slightly different take on it. Will you have a cocktail, too? (laughs) No, I don't have a cocktail, but that's a great idea. We need that. uh, I, I think the way I look at it is that Putin is trying to redress the humiliation that he perceived occurred in the post-Cold War era, and that, of course, includes NATO expansion. And I know Barry and I disagree on this one. Um, but I think it also includes the idea that Russia was not part of the rule setting. It's not just NATO expansion. It's the whole idea is that this is how everybody nation is supposed to behave post-1991, and Russia didn't set those rules. Russia wasn't consulted in that process. Um, and I think one of the other issues is best summed up by the title of a book by a former U.S. diplomat whom Elizabeth and I hosted a few years ago, and the title of the book is No Place for Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important. 
Um, unlike Elizabeth, I'm convinced that Putin is afraid of sort of the democratic evolution of Ukrainian of the Ukrainian state and society. I think you've got to go back to the so-called color revolutions, Georgia 2003, Ukraine 2004, and then, of course, in 2014, and even Kyrgyzstan in 2025 and 2010, um, all of which Putin blamed us for, for our democracy promotion. So it's not only that democracy is a threat, but it's democracy promoted by the West that becomes, um, that becomes a threat, a threat. And... Another point that I want to make is that Putin has what I would call an inferiority complex. And I think that this is a lot about status on the international stage. I mean, it's hard to separate out each of these issues. Um, I think that Putin thinks, now I've never met the man, so this is my interpretation, uh, that Putin seems to think that he can't be, a, that Russia can't be a great power unless or until it has somehow reconsolidated what was the post-Soviet space. I'm not talking about communism. I'm not talking recreate the Soviet Union, but Russia being the regional hegemon in that sort of imperial space. Um, and more recently, Russian commentators are talking about sort of czarist ambitions, as Elizabeth said, and not just this idea that Russia needs to be a great power by itself. So how this translates into Putin's strategy, I think it means the decapitation of the Ukrainian state, getting rid of the Zelensky government, um, and putting in place a much more compliant head of state, maybe another Lukashenko. And one of the things I want to throw out that we should be talking about is what's happening in Belarus and with Belarus. We're all focused on Ukraine. It's like we're not watching what's happening in Belarus. Um, Barry's going to talk about the military aspects, but I do think what's happening is a fundamental misreading of contemporary Ukraine, especially since 2014. Russia actually helped to create the Ukraine that exists today by seizing Crimea and by occupying or having pro-Russian proxies occupying uh, parts of the Donbass. And if Putin was hoping to avoid Ukraine drifting west, I don't know what else to call it, then his actions clearly backfired. Uh, one question that I think we should talk about is if Russia's concern is Ukraine's moving West, not just NATO expansion, how is Russia going to react to Zelensky just the other day uh, making a formal application to the EU, not NATO, but the EU, which is already being backed by particularly the Baltic states, but several other European Union members. Um, way back when, many years ago, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of the Baltic presidents at the time. And she was confirming rumors that I heard that at that point, this is the early 2000s, Putin was telling all those states to join the EU, but not NATO. At somewhere along the line, he's conflated the two. So Zelensky's not talking about NATO membership now, although he did the other day in Munich, but he's now talking about the EU and applying to um, the EU. Another question that's been mooted in the press and elsewhere is Putin's mental state. And I think that that's a big question. If you want to get scared, read Fiona Hill's interview in Politico the other day, where she was asked if he would actually use nuclear weapons, and she kind of said, yes, he would. So uh, I think we need to think about that. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm as pessimistic as she is, but if he feels that the war is going badly and that the sanctions are biting and the average Russian citizen is getting more and more dissatisfied with what's happening in the States, would he lash out? And then I saw an interesting theory today from a doctor who says that Putin's on steroids, perhaps for some illness. You know, it's an anti-inflammatory. Steroids can create aggression, 
And it would also, according to this doctor, explain the puffiness of his face. It's not just the Botox, which is what I always thought it was, but that it's something more than that. Anyhow, I'll throw that out. Okay, so what now? We've seen this become a major war. Um, and obviously, again, Barry's going to talk about this. The initial forays into Ukraine were based apparently on faulty assumptions. And I think they really thought that in places like Kharkiv, which they've now surrounded, which is a Russian-speaking city towards the east of Ukraine, that the military would be welcome at liberators. Obviously, that is um, not happening. So we're seeing a much more lethal kind of war, bombing with less, you know, less precise weapons, indiscriminate bombings of civilian targets and buildings, and basically the strangling of cities. Some of my Russian colleagues are asking what a siege of Kiev would look like, and I think this is also something that uh, we should discuss. And the two choices being mooted by my friends in Russia are Grozny during the Chechen War, which, as you all know, was totally leveled, or Sarajevo during the Balkan Wars in terms of sort of a slow strangulation with thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, et cetera, et cetera, indiscriminate shelling. Kiev could be in for a long haul, so, and we just don't know that. And then it was reported today that the Ukrainians captured some Russian war plans, and they figured the war was going to be over by March 6th. Well, that's Sunday, and I don't think it's going to be over by Sunday, so I just throw that out there. Um, I'm not sure that we're watching enough, or nor the Ukrainians are watching enough what's happening in the south and in the east, because that land bridge that we kept talking about in 2014 actually seems to be happening. As of this afternoon, our time, they seem to have captured Ferzon, Mariupol is surrounded as Odessa next, one of my favorite places. Uh, but we should also keep in mind that this begins to involve outside players because Turkey has now invoked the Montreux Convention and closed the Straits to Russian warships. I also, one other thing, just I'm throwing out sort of a bunch of stray thoughts here. I don't think Putin anticipated the opposition that he's getting at home. There have been massive demonstrations in Moscow and Petersburg and across the country. Over 2,000 people have already been arrested for opposing the war. Today, the students at the Foreign Affairs Institute, Megimo, um, signed a petition to the authorities. The oligarchs, very interesting, are trying to be careful. They're kind of saying we should have peace um, without actually crossing Putin's um, line and uh, there was a report that one of the oligarchs was asked, well, you know, can't you guys do something? And the answer was, if you go to Putin and you say you've lost four of your five billion, Putin's response is going to be, you want to keep the other billion? Like, shut your mouth, kind of, kind of thing. Um, so just to wrap up, um, I do think that what we're seeing is, is a kind of brittleness of the regime. I'm not predicting a coup. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But a kind of lack of resilience that we might have seen 10 or even 15 years ago. Putin's certainly not getting the bounce that he did um, post-Crimea uh, 2014. Uh, I think this will be an increasingly brutal war in the short to medium term. I think it's not clear whether any off-ramps are for Putin. I mean, what's the face-saving mechanism here? Lots of talk about neutrality and, and you know, the Austrian model, the Finland model, whatever. But uh, Zelensky is certainly not going to demilitarize. And as I said before, if he really conflates EU with NATO and Zelensky somehow establishes some kind of a formal relationship with the EU, is that going to be acceptable as neutrality for, um, for Putin? Um, and I think that despite the sanctions and everything else, Putin really seems prepared for a long haul and is just going to stick with it.
Great. Thanks so much, Carl. That was also terrific. Um, Barry? You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP. Barry Posen. So I, I think there might be just a, a little repetition here. Um, just before I say much of anything, I just want to say in terms of trying to follow the war, uh, I, I think there's a, there's an illusory sense of high-fidelity information about the war, and I think the, the information is, is very fragmentary, and I also think it's, it's very managed. I, I think the Ukrainians are managing it, the West is managing it, the Russians are managing it. So we're reading the tea leaves here, and even the press has a problem. If you look at the various key press outlets, and you look at their like war situation maps, the data all comes from the same place. There is no independent judgment by these journalists, right? Uh, all the maps are coming basically from uh, the Institute for the Study of War, and uh, all the imagery is coming from Maxar, and Maxar is a big company that does uh, remote sensing, and basically it works for the U.S. government. So, you know, you really have to be careful about, about your inferences. And, of course, we all vote for root for the underdog, and we tend to privilege in our head the underdog winning stories. Harold was quite right to remind us that in the South, things are basically going swimmingly for the Russians, right? I think that's the only group. But anyway, let's back up a second and just talk about things the way kind of a, a simple-minded, you know, kind of, you know, military hobbyist looks at these things. Uh, remind you what the material balance here. Russia's population is about three times Ukraine. The GDP ratio is a little bit more lopsided. It might be as much as 10, but that was at the old exchange rate, so who knows, it might have dropped <laughs> to five already, so the Ukrainians may already be winning in that score. Uh, militarily, using the kind of simplest measure of ground forces units, maybe there are 60 or 70 Russian brigades scattered all over Russia, they were scattered all over Russia, and maybe there's 20 or 26 Ukrainian brigades scattered all over Ukraine, so maybe a three-to-one ratio in terms of the you know, basic military units of account. In the theater, it's even worse. You know, the Russian military mavens have invented a new way to count combat power, so we have no idea what they're talking about most of the time, <laughs> but I've tried to reduce it to things that I understand, and uh, by my calculation, there's something like 30 to 50 Russian brigades around the periphery of Ukraine or now in Ukraine or in Belarus. And east of the Dnieper, maybe half the Ukrainian army, so maybe 10 brigades. And this is based upon you know, really crude assessment. So between 3 to 1 and 5 to 1 combat power advantage in the fight, in the theater, and that leaves out Russian superiority in air and artillery and rockets. I remind you that in Cold War days, on the basis of some Ouija board we all read, uh, we believed that a theater ground force ratio worse than one and a half to one was pretty bad. And this is obviously a lot worse than one and a half to one. Uh, and just in case the numbers aren't bad enough, Ukraine has a very long and irregular border, a lot of land area. They're thin on the ground. The terrain is relatively flat. It doesn't particularly lend itself to defense in the east. So basically... The Ukrainian situation is pretty awful, and I confess that in an email to a friend of mine before this war started, I, I used the term knife through butter, which is a term that I almost never use in describing a military outcome. So yours truly, based upon what he saw, what he knew, what he heard, thought this thing was going to go very fast and very badly, right, for the Ukrainians. Right now, it's a mixed picture. Uh, you, Russians have been very successful in the South, and uh, the why of that will be an interesting study for military analysis and speculation. I'm not going to 
I can't tell you what my uh, a compelling hypothesis at the moment. There's been a kind of vicious attrition fighting in and around Kharkov, uh, um, but it looks sort of like conventional type fighting, like the Russians weren't trying anything that fancy. It just got off to a blown uneven start. Uh, I'm guessing they did expect to be greeted like liberators, which is why I think you see light reconnaissance forces showing up in Kharkov early and getting shot to pieces. So now the Russians have had to get nasty. And then Kiev is a pretty bad setback. That's that's a mess for them. And uh, I don't think you can paint it as anything else than a mess. So why is that? I mean, why isn't it the knife through butter? Uh, speculation here. First, the obvious, uh, the soldiers and Ukrainian paramilitaries, and I think they're like border guards and other people in the fight. But anyone who wore a uniform professionally and who's in the fight seems to have had good tactical training. They seem to be well armed. They seem to be very determined. And they're causing a lot of dead Russians, especially in the exurbs of, of, of Kiev, probably with some of the early deliveries of, of Western, you know, high-end anti-armor weapons. The, I'm, best, I'm guessing the British end law has already comported itself well in this fight. Uh, on the other hand, Ukraine was somewhat underprepared for this war, partly because of uh, late mobilization. Uh, it's, you know, Lansky didn't want to order the mobilization, so he didn't. And the Ukrainian military kind of re needed mobilization to flesh itself out. So the units that are fighting in the in the east are probably fighting at less than the strength they were meant to have, and that might may account for some of the un uneven patterns of fighting. Like we're not seeing much Ukrainian artillery, as far as I can tell. Not that there is so much of it, but it does exist. But you're not hearing much about it. Uh, Probably the most important thing here is when I was starting to look at what was happening, I started remembering, you know, Clausewitz's uh, book six on defense. And if you go back and read Clausewitz's book six on defense, you know, on war, and look at all the reasons he says that the defense is the stronger form of war, and then treat it, treat it as a checklist and look at what superficially seems to be happening in Ukraine, you go, check, 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 check. So Clausewitz, the old... Prussian turns out to still have something to say about war in this part of the world. Um, the flip side is the Russians have some really odd ideas about this war to start with. And as you know, Elizabeth and Carol said, they drank their own bathwater. They believe their own baloney. And they seem to have convinced themselves that with a little shove, the natural proclivity of Ukrainians to want to rejoin the motherland would somehow assert itself. And who could believe they could believe something so absurd? But their military strategy seems to reflect it, and particularly in the, this attempt to take, take Kiev, um, uh, which was really an attempt to take the country by the, from the top down. They really sort of seem to have thought that if they could stage a military coup de main, which would allow them to lever it into an actual coup d'etat in which Zelensky would disappear and they would screw some other head on top of this country, they would give orders... Lay down your arms, we're rejoining the motherland or something. But it's a, it's a screwy set of ideas that seem to be underneath this. And I'm guessing within the Russian military establishment, all the kind of gray zones, special operators, all those kind of innovator entrepreneurs got somebody's ear, right? And the initial campaign has that look, right? And they crash and burn very badly. And partly due to bad luck, uh, partly due to, you know, some surviving uh, Ukrainian air defenses and some to the fact that Ukrainian soldiers and, and, and internal security forces in Kiev reacted very quickly and 
the brawl started very fast, and this thing had to cascade in the Russians' direction to work pretty quick, and it didn't. Um, so, founded on the odd political and military ideas. Uh, second, and Eric Higginbotham cued me to this, but uh, Pavel Fulkenhauer, who is a Moscow-based military analyst, very respectable one, was commenting on it this morning. The weather, which Clausewitz likes to talk about in terms of terrain, which is historically has favored the Russians and all their military campaigns against aggressors, a.k.a. General Mudd, is that... <laughs> no, General Mudd switched sides, and General Mudd has been fighting on the side of the Ukrainians, and it seems to be bogging down the heavy Russian mechanized and armored forces in a pretty significant way. We should also admit this is a pretty big operation, not the biggest thing that the Russians ever contemplated, but one of the biggest things they've done, I was trying to scratch my head, and I wonder if they've moved as many armored units around since Czechoslovakia in 68. Uh, someone who's a better historian, I want you to tell me if, if there's a, you know, where is the more recent bigger op Russian military operation than this one? In terms of size, the force that's down here is a little less than half the size of the old group of Soviet forces, Germany, which is a pretty big concentration of forces. So it's a big operation. And there's thousands of vehicles that take hundreds of kilometers of road space. Because of general mud, they're sort of compressed into the road space, right? So uncoiling this snake into Ukraine, it was going to be a big problem anyway. The Russians haven't done it in a long time. The weather hasn't favored them. The odd bridge has been blown. The odd shot has been fired. Friction, fog, and fear made themselves felt on the Russian side. So... Maybe it's not such a surprise, but we shouldn't assume that they won't get their act together, right? They may begin to you know, get the muscle memory back and begin to remember how to do these things and make some hard choices and fire a few generals, uh, and the thing will begin to, you know, begin to move in a way that's bad, um, bad for Ukraine as they begin to remember how to do this and solve their problems. Okay, so where are we? What's going to happen next? And I'll shut up. I don't know what's going to happen next, but several people have speculated that the Russians are going to do what they do best, which is bring in their artillery and their multiple rocket, multiple rocket launchers and just start shelling the hell out of any place where there's resistance. There's a little parenthesis here is they will need to get their logistics house in order to be able to drag the munitions up because this is a tonnage heavy project and you're not doing it with airplanes, you're doing it from guns. So first the shell has to go into the truck, the truck has to go to the front, it has to go out of the truck, into the gun and be fired at the city. This is all very terrible, but this itself is going to take some time to organize. They may be starting to have a little luck on the Kharkiv axis, just judging from the reportage today. So it may be that whole part of the front will break wide open for them. It's entirely possible. Two, right? In which case, you'll start to see arrows and forces in other way, places, and the central part of the front will start to look like the south. It's possible. I don't know that it's likely or not. I just can't tell what's going to happen. But... Kharkov doesn't look as good today as it looked yesterday, at least based upon scattered reporting. Um, so the Russians probably finished surrounding Kiev, and then we have this choice that was raised. Is it going to be, a, you know, a, like Grozny, you just destroy the place and don't worry about coercion? Or is it going to be the Serbs around Sarajevo? You're trying to coerce some outcome. What is it? I don't know who that is. But <laughs> I'm sure they'll... They disagree Talk. with you, Barry. <laughs> uh, I guess. I, I, my hearing aids are not very good in here. Uh, Ukrainians, what they're going to try and do is dig in wherever the Russians aren't yet and make the Russians come and dig you out and kill. They're going to try to kill as many Russians as they can. 
maybe this will cause the Russians to stop. Maybe a lot of Russians will desert. Maybe the Russians will want to negotiate. Um, there is this dog that hasn't barked, which is the Ukrainian forces on the western side of the country. Uh, if you looked at any map of the Ukrainian, it purported to be a map of the Ukrainian military, half their units were in the west. Those units were not pre-deployed to the east, and those units are mobilizing in a more normal way. They're first in line to receive incoming Western weapons. Uh, the Ukrainians are also trying to mobilize new, trying to mobilize new territorial uh, forces. So there, there's a buildup of Ukrainian forces in the West, and it's possible that those forces will begin to try and make themselves felt in the East, or it's possible that those forces will simply be able to, as they get their act together, be able to present a bulwark to the Russians so the Russians don't even think about moving west, but then you have some interaction effect between the west and the east that prolong the war for a long time and affect negotiations. Um, so all this brings us back to one final observation that Clausewitz makes. Uh, time which is allowed to pass unused accumulates to the credit of the defender. He reaps where he does not sow. Right. And the Ukrainian defenders are trying to reap where they did not sow by using time to build up their forces, to let the West organize economic sanctions and whatnot, uh, to let pressure build on Putin at home. But they have to figure out how they're going to cash in these advantages. And this brings us back to the what's been offered at the negotiating table, which, by the way, on the face of it, other than the Nazi business, which I don't even know how you would measure, the other two, I think... If it were me, I would be, I would be, Zelensky, I would be going back to his political coalition and say, we weren't willing to settle for these things before the war, but now that we know the Russians are serious and we look at our own situation and what it's going to cost us to keep fighting for a better deal, maybe this deal looks less bad now than it did before, but I think they're not there yet because I think they're still full of, a little full of piss and vinegar because they are, they are doing well in some places and it's going to take a while for them to begin to understand that this really kind of only ends one way, and that's with a whole lot of destruction in eastern Ukraine. So I'm sorry I went on too long. No, that, that was great, great. Thanks so much. Um, Maria, over to you. Um, so I was asked to talk about the economic... Maria Grinberg. So I'll start with the issue that's closest to heart, since it's the easiest to cover, which is I can't quite find any evidence one way or the other of whether Russia and Ukraine are still trading with each other. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, it doesn't seem like the natural gas or the coal exports to the Ukraine have been shut off, though I found some Ukrainian sources saying that they anticipate that the coal might be, which suggests that it's still running. Um, Ukraine is definitely still getting Russian gas, though they don't buy it directly from Russia. And this is an artifact of what happened with Crimea in 2015. They buy Russian gas from Western intermediaries, but it's still basically trading with Russia. So, in some respects, we still have wartime trade, but really there is zero information on this so far. So, thus ends stuff I'm actually an expert in. <laughs> now, on to sanctions. <laughs> um, so, I figure where I'm going to start is sort of lay out what the field of sanctions uh, against Russia are at this moment, and then address the two questions of will, this, will the sanctions affect Russia's ability to carry on the war effort, and will it affect their willingness to carry on the war effort? So... First, there are three different types of sanctions being levied against Russia at the moment. We have, quote-unquote, smart sanctions. We have commercial sanctions, which for some reason are also referred to as economic sanctions, even though economic is a much more general term. And then we have financial sanctions. 
And all three sort of work in different ways. So smart sanctions are levied against people, and the general idea is to make sure that only the leaders responsible for a foreign policy decision are the ones that pay for the actions, not the population of the state itself. So in this category, we have the asset freezes and the travel bans against select Russian oligarchs, the Russian parliament members, the Russian Security Council, and of course, Putin himself. Though in a lovely bit of theater, um, he personally is not on the travel ban list because they want to make sure that he has the ability to travel to neutral territory for negotiations. Um, Smart sanctions, in large part, are meant to be symbolic. They're typically used to signal resolve or to signal solidarity. Um, but they're not in, in any way capable of producing too much of an effect. At best, they can get the supporters of the regime who dislike being personally sanctioned to put pressure on the leader to change foreign policy. But plenty of historical examples have shown us that that's not really a viable strategy and it doesn't really work. Then we have commercial sanctions. Uh, these are prohibitions on the export of certain goods to Russia. So specifically, we have states that are targeting um, military exports to Russia or things that are adjacent to military industries. So the EU and the U.S. banned um, export um, high-end technologies in the defense and aerospace and maritime sectors. So we're talking about um, computer chips, sensors, microelectronics, that kind of stuff. They also banned technologies that have to do with oil refineries, which is a very weird Tack on that I'm not entirely sure how it relates to the whole let's stop the war, but that's a whole different issue. Um, they also, um, the EU banned exports of aircraft and spare parts for aircrafts to Russian companies. And some EU companies are banned from doing business with specific Russian firms. But again, these are firms that have to do with the defense companies, arms manufacturers, and some shipping companies. So all war adjacent. Um, the commercial sanctions, when um, they're aimed at products that a target state actually needs, and when the target state has trouble getting these products elsewhere, can produce considerable pressure. However, it takes time for that pressure to actually hit. Once the pressure starts, it builds up over time, and the, the longer the sanctions are maintained, the more effect they have. But in the short term, in the very short term, and here I'm talking months, weeks, Short term, commercial sanctions have very little effect, right? Russia has the technology that it needs in the extreme short term. It has the airplanes. It has the spare parts for the airplanes it already has. It has to run out of its stockpiles. Things then have to start breaking down. It has to run out of the stockpiles of the spare parts. Only then will the commercial sanctions start to have an effect. Once they do start to have an effect, then pressure will start building up but we're talking about the long-term here, not the short-term. Financial sanctions work very differently. But for, oh, of course. So first, uh, financial sanctions are sanctions on Russia's ability to raise capital and use currency that it has in store in foreign banks. So um, these prevent Russia from being able to raise sovereign debt in the UK, the EU, and the US right now. They're working on other states, I think. It prevents certain banks from transacting in the U.S. dollar and in the sterling. And I couldn't find if the EU has joined that yet, but um, I, I'm assuming they're on their way to it. Um, also in this category, we see the widely publicized removal of Russian banks from the SWIFT system, which um, the EU decided on over the weekend, but only yesterday did they actually finally decide on which banks they were going to remove. 
And they chose to remove seven banks, leaving other banks still connected to the platform. And that's significant, and I'll get back to that. And also in this category, we have the freezes on the Russian central bank assets in the U.S. and in the EU. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP. Now, unlike commercial sanctions, financial sanctions produce an almost immediate effect on the target state. But on the flip side, they're one-shot tools. So if the target state manages to weather the financial storm, then there's no additional um, pressure that you can squeeze out of your financial sanctions. It's a one-and-done kind of thing. Um, because of this, most of the time, financial sanctions are actually used as threats. They're not actually ever carried out because it's the fear of that uncertainty, the fear of whether or not the target economy can survive the initial shock that's actually doing a lot of the work. Once both the sanctioner and the target state know that they can live through the sanction, the damage is done, but no additional pressure can be um, exerted from this particular tool. So given these different types of sanctions against the Russian state, Will, they be, will this affect the capability of Russia to carry on the war effort? Again, so treaty capability and willingness is two separate things. And in the short term, I don't think that it will be able to do much of anything. The smart sanctions are mostly symbolic, as I said. Um, and of all of the reactions to the Russian invasion, this was the easiest to predict because the United States whips this out every time someone does something they don't particularly like. So... Everyone in Russia should have seen this one coming, and they should have known that this was going to happen, so I don't see this having much of an effect. The commercial sanctions take time to produce an effect, so if this is a short crisis, and again, I'm talking several months, we're still pretty much in the short-term category. If this is a short-term crisis, then the commercial sanctions are not going to be able to do anything to affect the Russian capability to conduct the war. The financial sanctions are a more interesting question. Because on the one hand, they're having an effect, and we can see that. The value of the Russian ruble has fallen substantially. It's nowhere near where it used to be. On the other hand, we know that Russia prepared for this. We know that um, they've built up a war chest, and a lot of the actions being taken by the West are not quite as all-encompassing as they're frequently portrayed. So there's not really an appetite for completely cutting Russia out of the global financial system because that affects the global markets a little too much for everyone's comfort. So on Russia's preparation, they've built up a substantial war chest in order to particularly weather this exact crisis, because the United States has tipped its hand during the Crimea crisis. They quite literally said, we are considering taking you out of SWIFT. Russia took that to heart, and they prepared for it. Um, freezing the Russian... Um, central bank assets in some respects are doing a lot of damage, but also 20% of Russian reserves are held in gold. That's not something that the West can affect. A substantial part of the Russian um, war chest that they built up is housed in China. That's also something the West cannot affect. So as tough as the West wants to be, there's still a sizable amount of funds that Russia has to use and have been using to stabilize the ruble. Granted, not quite enough to get it back to where it was, but enough to make sure that all of the hurt is on the Russian population and not on the Russian war effort. So again, I'm not saying that Russia won't feel the pain from the financial sanctions. I'm just saying that it won't be enough to affect the Russian capabilities to fight the war effort. 
Um, and on the question of cutting Russia off from the financial system, well, here the problem is that everyone still needs Russia as a supplier of gas and a supplier of oil. And in order to get the Russian supplies, you have to pay them for it. And if you're going to pay them for it, you need at least some Russian banks connected to the financial systems. Which means that at the end of the day, what the financial sanctions are really doing is picking domestic winners and losers in Russia. Which gets us back to the theory of the losers are meant to cause enough pressure on the regime to cause a foreign policy change. And that assumes that the Russian government is incapable of redirecting who wins and who loses from these interactions, which I'm not entirely sure is a safe assumption to make. And then to not take up too much time, all I'm going to say about the Russian willingness to carry on the war effort is, given everything that I just laid out about the sanctions, I don't think that's an economic question. I, don't, I think the question of whether sanctions can affect the Russian willingness to carry on the war is a question of what's at stake in this conflict. And as you guys know, we can't really agree on it. All of the commentators um, and all of the newspapers can't really agree on it. But the only thing I can say is if this crisis is short, the sanctions are not going to do much of anything. Wonderful. Thanks, Maria. That was terrific. Um, great. So the floor is now open. Um, I'm going to keep our, our running list of uh, folks in the room who'd like to get in on the queue. And uh, folks in Zoom, uh, please uh, raise your hands as well, and I'll try to come to you. Um, so, Sam, you get the first question twice today, but everyone else keep your hands <laughs> up high. Yeah. Uh, I can jump into it while you're taking questions. So I'm Sam Leiter, second-year PhD student in political science. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd be really interested to hear everyone's thoughts on why this happened um, and what exactly the United States or NATO or anyone else could have done to uh, prevent this war from occurring. Um, and I know this has been debated pretty heavily. I'm curious to hear what people's thoughts are. I have my own views, but I'd like to hear people who know about this. Big question for the panel. Anyone like to jump in? So is your question why now or why at any point? Uh, I think I think both. I think both would be interesting. Okay. Um. Carol, save it. I think that Elizabeth and I sort of laid out the what we what we think Putin was thinking. I think the why now has to do with several factors. One is that Putin looked at our messy withdrawal from Afghanistan and said, "That's it. They're weak." I think given the divisiveness within this country, he figured Biden couldn't sort of rally the troops, I don't mean military troops, but troops to, to do this. And I think that Putin figured that there was no way in hell that the Western coalition would stick together long term. If you look at what happened during the fall, Gazprom did not renege on its contractual commitments, but it did not fill the storage tanks in Europe the same way it had in previous winters. So it had already driven up the price of gas, and I'm sure that somebody was calculating, well, you know, Europe will last a week, and then they're going to need gas, and it's going to be a cold winter, and, and therefore they're going to split from the United States. Well, that hasn't happened. So I think that that was a gross miscalculation on their part. I, my sense is that Putin thought he had it all figured out, or Putin and whomever he's talking to these days had, thought they had it all figured out, but that it's, uh, it's been much more complicated than they anticipated. Elizabeth Wood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I laid out my theories about this, but I think I think the key thing to understand is that I think they really fundamentally don't see Ukraine as a separate country. I mean, Putin has said that over and over and over again for time and years, that he thinks Ukraine as a deficient state, it's not a proper state, it should be a part of Russia. So really, he's been waiting for a long time to see when he could 
do this. And so, so the when question is, I completely agree with, with Carol on that. Barry Posen. Rather than say that I know the answer, I would answer the question in terms of the kinds of causes that I tend to privilege in my analysis of almost everything. So I come at things from a, an international perspective and a structural realist perspective and a classical realist perspective. Um, so it, it, the joke I tell myself on this whole crisis is just like when I hear my colleagues talk about the first and second image, the unit level causes, is sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and sometimes a strategic argument is just a strategic argument, right? And the Russians have been com complaining for years about NATO expansion, uh, and uh, they thought they had an arrangement with us at the beginning that it, it sure wasn't on paper and it sure was deliberately big. Uh, and I think we talked out of both sides of our mouths, but we led the Russians to believe that there was not going to be a big move of NATO's borders in their direction. And there's been nothing but moves of NATO's borders in their direction since the end of the Cold War, and that includes the still, maybe someone who looked at the history knows better than I do, I, I don't know why in 2008 George Bush decided to leave America with this parting gift of, of essentially forcing Ukraine's membership in NATO onto the NATO agenda and really ramming it down the throat of our allies, who didn't, many of whom did not like this idea. But they agreed anyway, because they would, in the end, they'll do anything to keep America on side, because we provide free security in, in Europe. Uh, so Putin has said many times that uh, he doesn't want Ukraine in NATO. And um, if you look at the map, you look at where Ukraine is, you understand a little bit about the way we think about war and the way the Russians think about war, including general thermonuclear war, I think it's not very hard to understand why Russians would be neuralgic about Ukraine and NATO. Any Russian. Uh, this we can add to this the other you know, things where the Russians feel betrayed or frozen out of or whatever in terms of America's own foreign policy behavior over the last 30 years aside from NATO expansion. So from my point of view, we pushed and pushed and pushed. We've been warned many, many times. Not necessarily always in elevated, nice language. And uh, we always found a reason to ignore Russia's concerns and continue to move the goalposts in Russia's direction. Right? And um, so that's the strategic context. Uh, that may tell you something about the underlying causes of the war, but not necessarily the immediate causes. The war has many causes. And uh, it seems to me what we want to ask is, you know, this analysis gets you to coercive diplomacy. How do you move from Putin's campaign of coercive diplomacy over the last year or so to, uh, to actual use of military force? And all the hypotheses that have been offered here, I think, have something, probably has something to do with it. But I also think that the strategic view has something to say as well, which is, 
I give the Biden and European diplomacy on this period about a grade of B, not C, not D. I think they were very adept at re- reviving the Cold War practices that we used to use to regulate our military competition with the Russians. And I think we could have used those practices as tools to allay some Russian concerns about whether a defensive missile can be turned into an offensive missile in Poland or whether theater nuclear forces would be based in certain places or fancy conventional forces on one sort or another. And by the way, the Russians helped bring this on themselves. This is not like one of these situations where we did everything bad and, and, and then they only reacted. There was a tightening of the competition here. And the Russians have been pretty nasty over the last few years, butting up against the you know, NATO forces on their periphery. And, and, and taking Crimea was not a way to endear themselves to people. And it, it caused our smaller allies to be worried about little green men. And we put in little green forces to defend against little green men. But that's, from their point, Russians' point of view, to go up, oh, that's the... First foot in the water, the next thing we're going to see fighter bases, you know, with, with stealth fighters in the Baltics or something. So the reason I give the diplomacy a B is because uh, we were responsive in the diplomacy to every Russian concern except the Ukraine concern. The Ukraine concern publicly, we doubled down. Publicly, the Ukrainians doubled down. Uh, and the French took the Russians some offer, which I still don't know what it was, which it seemed like the Russians were going to buy into something about reviving mints, and that had a half-life of, I don't know, you, you'll remember me, it was a day, yeah. two days, yeah, and then Putin said, I don't like the smell of this. We don't know why I didn't like the smell of this. So one could say that um, the French and the Germans took it upon themselves to try and deal with this one neuralgic issue, which the Americans and the Ukrainians wouldn't touch, Try and get you know, throw throw Putin a, a rope ladder or something, so that he could tell himself he succeeded with a coercive diplomacy in getting a total package, right? You know, the total package of things that he wanted in some form, right? Uh, or you can say that you know as quickly as the French went to pitch this idea, the Russians and the Ukrainians and everybody else in Europe and all the commentary in the West poo pooed it. A handful of, you know, sort of talking, not say talking heads, but analysts who believe in the Finland model, the neutral model, we were all laughed out of court as soon as we brought it up before this all happened. Just, you know, that's ridiculous. We're not doing that. No one's doing it. Didn't work. The Finns didn't like it. It's bad, bad, bad. Forget about it. Right? It's okay. Right? So my view is, again, proceeding on this line of logic, that Putin said, I'm not being taken seriously. And then he had to decide whether the war was a better option than whatever other coercive tools he still had or whatever coercive strategy he might have sustained for a longer time, right? And that's where you get into the question of why is war now better than war later, which was a possibility for him, or why war at all rather than some other set of tools, right? And then why, when moving to the war option, a kind of abandonment of the strategic rhetoric and a turn to this discussion of, you know, the, the Russian Kievan Rus and the Nazis and the, <laughs> I mean, this whole kind of cockamamie stuff that he came out with in these two talks that he gave, 
uh, which you know put off everyone, including me. It was like, wait a second, I, we thought we were negotiating with one person with one set of interests. Now we're dealing with a person with a, a different person with a different set of interests, and, and those we don't even know how to how one could address this whole laundry list of problems and issues and hurt feeling, right? So, you know, we're at sixes and sevens, but my view is we have to follow the negotiating path that actually can be negotiated because the rest of this can't be, right? And the real question is when in the course of the next few days will there be a moment where in the bargaining theorist terms, we will have measured relative power and relative will, right? And there'll be scope for a discussion about how the war ends. And um, my own guess is that unless, I mean, the, the Russians have proven that their interest in the area is stronger than ours, and they've proven that, that their military force, however clunky it is, within a week we're going to know that they're stronger than the Ukrainians. I think that's what we're going to know. The Ukrainians are going to know the cost of competing with it, and there's going to be a moment where you start thinking about what a deal looks like, and it's only going to be a moment, because if you don't catch the wave before the Russians start thinking that victory is in sight, the Ukrainians are not going to get to make a deal, right? So they have a very, they're going to have a very narrow window of opportunity. And it's a window of opportunity that, that sadly, given the realities of, of of international life, they're going to have to fight and die and kill just to get to a window where they can get a deal that leaves them with most of their country potentially intact and with their sovereign government intact. And it's not going to be a very big window, is my guess. Now, I, I could be entirely wrong. You know, if the Russians collapse, if Putin falls, if the Russian army just implodes, hey, I'm I'm going to applaud, right? Because I don't like what they're doing more than anybody else's. But based upon this model and what I can see, this is the path that I think is life. I'm sorry for going on so long, but you asked a question that isn't a one-word answer. Yeah. This is a very big question. But can, I, can I try to argue with Barry? This Elizabeth Wood. <laughs> the question is, what, in that moment of coercive diplomacy, there are two ways of looking at this. You're assuming that his main goal was NATO, and then he went into Ukraine when he failed. I think it's equally plausible that it was the opposite. He wanted Ukraine. He massively builds up to get ready to go there, looking for the pretext. The Biden administration was correct. He was going to make up a pretext. He was going to go in. And if he got NATO along the way, that would be a goodie. So I think it's really, it's, it's yeah, one of those extra All your argument is, is that there's nothing to negotiate. That's where you're well, well, no, no, no. There, I, there's nothing true. to negotiate. Okay, no, no. if there's nothing to negotiate, there's nothing to negotiate. No, no, I right, think you're right. right. We have to go, we have to assume that there's something sensible to negotiate. But I think it's plausible that from the beginning, they were hope, they were massing to get Ukraine uh, or get or get Donbass. I mean, maybe the, the other possibility is that this was all, they were initially thinking they will just use massive overforce because they've always used massive overforce in these things. So it'll be bloodless so they can quietly take Donbass really fast and no, no one, but then... Uh, then somewhere in there, they decide to go for Kiev, and that, th that that's when the whole thing gets gets blown out of proportion. Yeah, if they wanted if they wanted the Donbass, they could have had an operation that looks somewhat different, and it probably would have had been had a greater likelihood of success because yeah. the assets that they frittered away in uh, in Kiev could have been part of the 
operation to. This is what I thought. I, I thought they would do. I thought they would do a double envelopment, and they would move so fast that, sadly, for the Ukrainian forces defending forward in, uh, which may still happen, the Ukrainian forces defending forward in in the middle of Donbass, there's a good risk. There's a risk they're going to be enveloped, and they're all going into the bag. The, the Russians are going to have twenty thousand prisoners before you know it if the Ukrainians aren't very fast. Right? That there's a real risk of that. Right? Uh, I thought that was what they were going to try for and start with. Can I say one more thing about the military, though? The other thing is that, as best, I'm not a military person, but it looks to me like there are three types of forces there, right? Yeah. There's the regular Russian army, there's the special troops, the Wagner uh, types who've been fighting in Syria. They're highly trained. They haven't used those yet. And then there's the raw recruits. And the raw recruits are who they decide to send in first to see what would happen. Um, and that was really bad idea. The raw recruits are doing really terribly. They were duped. They were beaten. They were forced to sign contracts and say they could go to Ukraine. So I think that may be also part of a Russian miscalculation or, or a, a feint. They're going to send them in and then they're the cannon. That's a double miscalculation because that may be part of the Russians fooling themselves right. about the army that they had. And in the process, they filled, they fooled the Western military, Rus Russian military analytic community who themselves thought that the Russians would perform much better. Right. Um, and I think that, that this whole question of what, what was the true nature of the Russian army, the Russian army army, uh, I think the whole thing needs to be revisited compared to what we were being told two weeks ago. Great. Um, I think that. Okay. So I'd like to go to the Zoom. Um, I see one of our alums, uh, Tim Wright, um, coming to us from D.C. So, Tim, uh, over to you. Hey, Taylor. Uh, can you hear me okay? We can hear you great. Thanks. Hey, uh, hey th thanks for letting me uh, drop in uh, tonight. It's... Uh, Long days um, here in D.C. right now. Um, this has been really, really uh, great to hear. Uh, first of all, because yeah, the panel has been, you know, at least from my personal opinion, really spot on and given a, a great overview of uh, the run of play. Uh, then also some of the real challenges that uh, that we're up against here. Um, the analysis is uh, it tracks quite similarly to uh, to what we're seeing, not just in the press, but uh, in conversations here. So for your audience, uh, they've got a great uh, rundown. Uh, the first part of my question you already answered. Uh, Barry, thanks for the B. I uh, really appreciate that. That's a uh, high praise uh, coming uh, from you. So I'm going to also throw a, a somewhat uh, open-ended question here because I legitimately want to know what you think uh, for the panel. Um, if you had your hands on the levers of power for the day uh, in the Oval Office tomorrow, uh, what would you change? Uh, what would be your approach um, you know, given the conditions that you've laid out and some, you know, real, uh, you know, what seem to be complex problems, uh, you know, we're trying to sort, uh, even though we're not uh, one or the other of the belligerents uh, in this fight. So uh, love to hear what you think. And thanks. Great. Thanks. Um, good luck take a kick crack. I think the Carol of Biden administration is to keep the allies on side and to make sure there are no defections. I mean, as Maria was talking about, there, you know, the cutouts are the carve-outs are to continue to buy Russian oil and and natural gas, and that's why not everybody's been thrown out of SWIFT. And I think that's really a very important point. Uh, it may be different in the summer than it is now, but it's still only the beginning of March. Um, I thought that the Biden administration made some serious offers to deal with some of the problems that Barry was laying out about um, 
deployment of missiles, where they could be deployed, what kinds of missiles could be deployed to revisit the CFE and INF treaties and uh, things like that. Um, we don't want to fight there, and we've made it perfectly clear that we're not going to fight there. The only other thing, I guess, is somehow to twist Zelensky's arm to say, okay, uh, maybe there's some kind of compromise in here, although I'm not sure about EU versus NATO, or will you accept some kind of an association agreement that Ukraine already has, but operationalize it more, but we announce that we never really want to be part of NATO. Because if Barry's right, and that's the primary driving force, then that's the thing that we have to get accomplished in order to stop the war. Other, other comments? On, on your question, Tim? Uh, Barry Posen. There's, there's what you can do, and there's also what you need to look look out for, and I, I'm guessing you know what you need to look out for, which is, um, are, are, the Russian, is, are the Russians going to start casting an eye westward to the more successful the, um, the munitions supply operation become? And are they going to start trying finding ways to harass it um, kinetically? Uh, and um, is that going to be a particularly controllable set of interactions? So uh, I think the escalation risks of this thing are are real, even given you know a commitment to self restraint. And of course, it's already the case that talking heads include and that in the West, but also President Zelensky himself have mentioned this no fly zone idea. I think we all know that that idea has to put the kibosh on it, right? Because that is getting into the war, and that's just that. So, People should stop using that term and start using the term, you know, lend our air force to the Ukrainians, right? Because that's what that means. And um, so that idea has to be has to be argued against. You can't leave it to the likes of us to do that argument. Right? Um, it's it's got to be reasons. The president was, you know, pretty clear and pretty eloquent months ago when he said, you know what it means if we're in a war in Ukraine, it means that we're having a nuclear crisis with the Russians and potentially a nuclear war. That's what it means. It was very simple. It was very clear. Well, that 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 needs to be deployed. Uh, third, uh, and I think it's extremely hard to do given the, the, the problem keeping secrets on matters of this kind, I think you need to figure out what a neutralization package for Ukraine is going to look like. And you've got to start figuring out what the story is going to be about why such a neutralization package would be credible uh, with the Russians. Which means that we and the rest of our NATO allies would have to be willing to make public declarations of some sort that you know this whole issue is off the table for 20 or 30 years the Ukrainians would need to do something even more. And they're not going to do that if they think the Americans are in their pocket. And this gets to the final issue, which is moral hazard. I think we've filled the Ukrainians with moral hazard. Uh, you know, this agreement that we have with them, the strategic cooperation agreement, was just re-upped in November, quietly, ostensibly. I'm sure the Russians are. But this is a, these are moral hazard engines. Right? And um, they want to believe we may come to the rescue. They want to believe. Right? 
right? And it's a harsh thing to do, but you have to disabuse them, disbelieve, but you have to work through the modalities of a neutralization agreement that's, an, that's honorable and real, right? It can't be that the Ukrainians have no weapons. It's got to be more like the, what, the Finnish are because they have to be able to defend themselves because the Russians have proven themselves nasty, right? So this, is, this, this needs to be considered very carefully, and it has to be a package, but but uh, people need to be ready for the moment. And by the way, I'm not optimistic. So I'm not even sure I'm right that this is the path. There may be no path, but it's a path. And there was enough Russian rhetoric out there at the outset that the path should be explored. It should have been explored before. But in, unless we see signs of collapse in the Russian forces and victory is at hand, people have to start figuring out how they're going to talk their way out of this. Otherwise, it, it's, it just gets more and more hellish. I don't see where it ends. Um, Suzanne Freeman. Hi, um, I'm Suzanne. I think that my questions are slightly less general, but that's okay. Um, I think, Barry, you talked about, like, fog and friction and fear, and one of the things that we've seen sort of some reports on is, like, morale issues in the Russian military, especially among conscripts. I mean, like, as you said, it's difficult to know what's true coming out, and I'm curious if you might have any thoughts on morale, either on the Ukrainian side or the Russian side. I'm also curious, sort of, we've talked about when will Russia use indiscriminate violence, although pictures from Kiev seem pretty, or pictures from Kharkiv seem pretty indiscriminate. Um, and part of what I've wondered is if what's gone on here is that, like, the combat experience from Syria and Chechnya hasn't transferred well, and I'm wondering if you might have a thought about that. I'm also curious, Maria, how different you think these sanctions today are um, from the sanctions in 2014. It seems like really only some of the financial sanctions are bigger. I think the oil sanctions are really about like crippling that particular industry and making greenfield production difficult in the future, which would make the country poorer. Um, and then finally, sort of on this negotiation, you know, I'm not going to ask for permission. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I will sit there and you can have my chair. No, because I think you have answers to all your questions. <laughs> I don't have answers. Um, and then, like, on the negotiation piece, seems to be that, like... When did this start? Four questions? <laughs> I'm sorry. You know that I've lost all authority to moderate a panel. So, last question. <laughs> it's the last question, I promise. <laughs> it's because every time I say I have two questions, then you say no, you only get one. Yeah. <laughs> you really get one next time. I'm going to be docked. <laughs> I know. I'll suffer for a long time for this. Um, basically, like the, it, one of the things I wonder about the negotiations is Russia has a very different sort of belief about what's happened for the last eight years. It seems difficult to even agree about the facts on the ground of what, what the history that has taken place is. How do you overcome it? How do you overcome that at the negotiation table to talk your way out of it? That's my Okay, I think there's definitely one for you, Maria. So yeah. why don't we start with you? And I'll... so then you should go to Carol and Elizabeth yeah. to talk about what you consider. What's your What's your sense of the state of nationalism in Russia among the young people who might be vulnerable? And what's your sense of where Ukrainian nationalism is today? Because there's both an ethnic and a civic nationalism at work in Ukraine. And I think what we're seeing is the best face of Ukrainian civic nationalism, but there's another face of Ukrainian nationalism. So rather than me speculate on something I don't know anything about, I would rather listen to you guys speculate on something you do know something about. Okay, you, Excellent. you can start the yeah. Maria Grinberg. Uh, so in terms of the sanctions, they are a lot harsher so a lot of stuff that was only threatened 
um, over the Crimea. I don't know what we're calling it, takeover. Annexation. Annexation, thank you. Um, so a, a lot of stuff that was only threatened over that incident is actually being done now. But again, it's only being done in bits and pieces and not entirely, sort of not in a way that would prevent Russia any loopholes to actually feel complete and utter pain. And again, that's just based on the way that the markets are structured. But that does go into the question of why now? I obviously don't have a crystal ball and I don't have a mirror into Putin's thoughts, but given the supply chain constraints and all of the transportation issues that the pandemic caused, we're in a situation where the oil market is really constrained. There's really no one that can produce more. So if we cut out the 11% that Russia supplies to the world market, there's going to be a lot of pain there. So now is really a good time to be doing this. Not that, again, no tea leaves here. Thanks. On national, Carol. Okay, so on, on Carol, save it. Which I guess is Suzanne's question in part. Um, the, the public opinion polling in Ukraine in 2014 had no support for NATO membership at all, but had a lot of support for the EU Association Agreement, which Yanukovych reneged on. The public opinion polling I've seen much more recently be precisely because of the annexation of Crimea and the occupation of Donbass has many more Ukrainians, a little bit more than half, looking to join NATO and supportive of some kind of NATO membership bid. On the Russian side, it's much harder to ascertain. Um, the numbers that I've seen over the last couple of days are that over 50% of the population at the moment supports the war what they know about the war. I mean, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a really important thing because Russia, as of today, has cut off all the independent media. Um, they've really restricted the amount of information in the public square, and public media is talking about how it's all our fault and the fascists in Ukraine and, and everything else. And certainly the older part of the population believe that, but to Barry's question specifically... The younger population, the under 30, those don't buy ones, this at all. Those are the conscripts. That right. Don't bu but don't buy it at all. Yeah. Um, particularly, you know, the more liberal, the college-age kids. And I'm not sure about the, yeah. you know, military conscripts age 18, but the kids who have been in college and, and sort of tried to be entrepreneurs and stuff like that just are inalterably opposed to the war and don't buy the narrative that the Kremlin is trying to, to sell. I don't have hard numbers, but that's what I've been reading. Yeah. Elizabeth I Wood. Back, I, I love Barry's opening comments. That, you know, it's really, really, really hard to get good information yeah. on what's going on. Um, Russians are not going to say what they think about a war if if opposing it is treason with a p potential twenty-year sentence. So right. we've got a big problem. There. There's no public support for the war in terms of mass demonstrations where there was for Crimea, but those happened after it was already successful. It's easy to say, oh, this was great because it looked bloodless. Um, the, to the extent that Russians have been. Um, ignoring it, there's a kind of way that they have put on blinders, like, uh, this is above my pay grade, I cannot weigh in on this, I know this is very, very, very dangerous. So, but what they sense, if the, it's one of those things that if the war goes badly and lots of dead bodies are coming back, that sentiment, which is kind of like, I'm not looking at this, could, could, could shift. Carol, save it. I can interrupt for a second, that the 
Russian troops are actually leaving the dead bodies, I hate to be so graphic about this, on the ground in Ukraine because precisely for that reason they don't want public opinion to turn when the body bags start coming home to the media. Well, Elizabeth Wood. There might be a mobile crematorium. They certainly, since 2014, they've made it, it and with the Donbass right. occupation that they've already had for the last eight years, they've made it illegal to have public funerals for people who've died. Right. They've already been doing a lot of information control around that. So, but I don't think we should be overconfident that the, Rus the Russians will somehow rise up against Putin. The, the, the simultaneous uh, going all thumbs on the civil society starting last winter uh, with the buildup of the um, occupation around the troops around Donbass make me think that they were preparing for the possibility right. that there would be protests and making sure that there won't be any. So I don't think protests are going to change anything or stop anything. And we may have a sanctions effect. This is Maria, the question to Maria, where the sanctions make people suffer and they say, see, they're out to do this on purpose. They're doing this to get us. This is a very easy Which question. Which would fit the Kremlin narrative. It would fit the Kremlin narrative. So I just wrote a piece last night, you know, talking about how this, you know, making the same argument that turned out Biden has made, that the Russians overcalculated their hand. But the one thing that I think where the Kremlin has done very successfully is they found the, the nerve argument for the, for the regular population. That said, Russians are very good at defending their territory. They're not very good at being offensive. We look at World War I, we look at other wars, they don't want to go into Ukraine. So I have a feeling that it, it, it rings true to me that the soldiers who are give, you know, giving up and surrendering saying, I, don't, I didn't know I was supposed to fight in here. I thought this was a peacekeeping operation, or I thought I was being sent for training, or I thought I was being sent for something else. I was supposed to come in and kill Ukrainians? This is not exactly in, they, they, it's, it, it's not that easy to turn Russians into killers that way. Um, but they have certainly cracked troops who've done exactly that in Syria um, and in exactly that in Chechnya, and they have uh, Chechen troops that could do it. So if they if they start using those those cracked troops, it doesn't matter. I, I mean, they you know better than I do. Barry uh, Posen. The question is whether they have, whether they have enough, yeah. of, you know, of elite forces um, uh, and, and mercenaries. Um, you know, the public sources suggest that there's. Twenty or thirty or forty thousand of these people in in the two Donetsk republics, and those people were never able to defend themselves without Russian help against the Ukrainian army. Right? Um, the Ukrainian army, once it got its act together, could pretty much best those people unless the Russians sent in active units. Right? And the front has stabilized because the Ukrainians don't want to fight Russian active units because that turned out to be quite painful. They often suffer really serious casualties, so the thing the thing stabilized. So if these 40,000 people who are the thugs that you can get, right, are not able to cope with the Ukrainian regular army, then, you know, I, I wonder who else is left. Well, you've got some, got some crack airborne divisions, crack, we don't exactly know what that means, but, you know, because one of them was what to go in and Yeah, it appears to have got shot up pretty good. Um and some special operators and whatnot. Well, this is a country that now, and I'm, remember, I'm a big skeptic of the whole insurgency idea, but this is a country of 40 million people, and now it's it's kind of mobilized for war. In the West, they're mobilizing for war. They're giving Kalashnikovs out to anybody who sort of wants one. Most of those people, sadly, will die in their first engagements with the Russians, but some will survive. And there's people in the active units who are... They're not, if they don't surrender, they're just going to be there fighting until you have to kill them all. So 
I thought if the if the Russians have to use conscripts to sit on the Ukrainians, that's going to be a pain in the neck. But if the Russians have to use their professionals to sit on the Ukrainians, you just sucked up most of the professionals in there. So I, I think they kind of have a problem now. If we're if we recalibrate what we think the Russians have that they can really use for mid to high intensity operations, right? Because we were told that all of these contract soldiers were somehow, you know, volunteers who wanted to be soldiers and would serve for a long time, right? And that this was the core of most of the combat units being sent, which didn't work out arithmetically anyway. But be that as it may, it's the, the, it's not that clear that the gap between many of the so-called contract soldiers and the conscripts is really all that great, right? So this idea that the Russians had mastered this hybrid conscript professional force that allowed them to have this gigantic army when they mobilized it, the idea that's coming into question. It doesn't mean they can't roll the stuff out and fire the guns and create a lot of trouble, but what the actual competence of these people are and what the commitment of it is, it just, it's in the wind. I'm not going to say it isn't there, but we have, we should be, we have a right to ask questions like, who are those guys really? You know, and, and, and so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't like say, you know, the Russians have some special cadre of ninja that they're going to release on this place and that's going to change things. I, I Maybe they do, but I, 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 I'd be surprised if they hadn't done it already because their whole plan depended on rapid victory. Right, so Mark, so they, Mark, use, they use their best, is my guess. Why didn't they use more aircraft, though? Why didn't they, you know, you, you've, you've talked about artillery from the ground. Why didn't they? I mean, it seems like the anti-ballistic missiles have worked, but no, or not anti-ballistic. No. What, what, nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows why anyone's doing anything. <laughs> I, I think the Russian missile barrages didn't work. I have a theory about why they didn't work, but the theory is pulled out of thin air, right? But I think they didn't work, right? Uh, Ask yourself the question why you don't see any pictures of the ground strikes of those munitions, right? Um, They're not hitting what they're supposed to hit, Mm -hmm. and the Ukrainians don't want the Russians to see pictures of where they did hit so they can figure out what's going to explain the missed distance, Mm -hmm. right? The Israelis used to never let people use take pictures of scud craters, right? There's something funny is going on in their initial attacks, right? And I think I, I guess I think I have a good guess, but I'm not technical enough to be able to make the argument, right? Uh, so I, I think they did not succeed in blowing down the you know, all the Ukrainian air defenses. They're not not like the Ukrainians had so much, but remember what the Serbs did to us in 1999. They tied us in knots with a small number of surviving, you know, batteries of good sands, which they bounced around and turned on every now and then. We almost never killed anything, right? But the Americans always had to worry about being killed, right? And the Americans were much better at suppressing air defenses than the Russians are. So if the Russians fly their best people here and they suspect that there's a few high-quality SAMs left, they may have some more embarrassing moments, which they don't want to have. Plus, listening to this person who was very eloquent this morning, Pavel Falkenhauer on BBC, it's not like the Russians have so many hot pilots, right? So that's part of it, right? Um, uh, But if you believe the stories from... Kharkov this morning, then the Russians are starting to use airplanes too, and they are starting to bomb. That may be dumb bombing, which means it's just terror bombing, but uh, it's, you know, they're starting, they're starting, starting to bomb. 
Right? It may even be true that some of the Ukrainian air forces survived. There used to be a lot of fighter bases all over Ukraine. And if the Ukrainians were clever and dispersed the aircraft, it's possible that the Russians really haven't caught many of them on the ground. But the Ukrainians don't want to fly them because the Russians have ground-based air defenses, and they're saving them for something. Who knows what they're saving them for, but they're saving them for something. And I didn't. If I had any SU-25s flying, which is a simple, basic aircraft, I'd have thrown them in at low altitude at that Russian column that stretched out on the road. And I just said, look, drop a bomb, take your lick. If you don't come back, you don't come back. You're a hero of Ukraine, you know, but, but go after that target set. And I think they would have done some egregious damage. But uh, apparently uh, they, the Ukrainians couldn't coordinate it or wouldn't, wouldn't coordinate it, right? Which cuts to the question of Ukraine's own preparedness for this war, which, you know, I gave the Americans a B for diplomacy. I give the Ukrainians only a B for preparedness because there's many, many things they could have done that they don't seem to have done. But there's a few things they seem to have done that seem pretty smart. So good on them for what they did do, but they're paying for what they did. Can I ask one last question? Is there any chance that they were actually preparing while Zelensky was saying, no, no, we're not preparing? Yes. That's what, that's what I've been thinking. They well, so much better than we thought they would. Do. Well, some people say they were, but there's still a lot that's missing. It makes no sense to suggest that the preparations were not everything that they, they could have been. The Ukrainians haven't blown up enough things. Mm. Right? When you're trying to defend a country like that against an aggressor like the Russians, you, you blow up everything. You blow up every bridge, every road. Mm. Right? And if you don't blow up the bridges and the roads, you know, the, the, you can just look at the... Look at the road that the, the picture that, again, this one company gave us, Maxar. Uh, but if you look at the road they're on, you know, they're going through forested terrain with forests that are close to the highway, right? Not always, but in some places. And where you have lots of trees close to a highway, you drop all the trees across the highway. That's just what you do, right? That's what you do if you know what you're doing. Right, the Finns, Swedes, they would do this in a nanosecond. They, they probably have someone who lives near the trees whose job it is to do it. Right, um, landmines, landmines too. Well, the Germans had people don't know this. the FRG. There was a there was a position in the FRG, the Federal Republic of Germany's military, in I believe the German Territorial Army called the Wallmeister. The Wallmeister was a guy who lived on the IGB, and he knew where the explosives were, and he knew where the chambers had been pre-drilled to do this demolition. And his job was to go to the little hut where the, shell, the charges were, take them to the chamber, drop them in the chamber, and pickle the thing when 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 somebody told him to do it, right? And they had these everywhere. And you're not going to know where they were. They don't want you to know this, but but it was organized. And, and the same with the, the, the Ukrainian Territorial Army. You don't organize your territorial army after the war starts, you organize it before the war starts, right? If if you can take an intelligent, literate person and even give them six or eight weeks of basic training, you get a huge leg up on what your capacities are going to be. And they, they just don't seem to have taken this seriously until the moment, right? So there's lots of things they didn't do. I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and say it, but... You know, I had Ukrainians call me 30 years ago and say, what, what should we do? And I said, go to Helsinki and ask them what they did and do that, mm -hmm. right? And that's the last advice anybody ever asked me for as far as Ukrainians. <laughs> but I think they'd have been better off. So I think we have time for uh, one more question. Uh, Diana, over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, I, I have a question about like the international response to this, more than just the Western side about sanctions and stuff. But if this were, were to come to a resolution, um, 
is it, uh, I mean, by resolution, I mean peaceful resolution in the best case scenario where Russia stopped fighting and uh, there was some sort of diplomacy uh, involved. Would you think if um, the resolution come from as a result of just the uh, Ukrainians and, uh, and the Russians negotiating, or would there be other partners involved in terms of the negotiating table um, and attitudes from other countries like, like China, um, India, UAE, that express their views different from the West? How would they, um, how would their opinion appear? Taylor, you need to talk about China. So I'll, I'll take that China question and give everyone a break. Um, Excellent. We're done here. Um, China's a large ancient country. Um, uh, Taylor so, Fravel. I've heard of it. Yeah, we, we've all heard of it. Um, um, a lot more recently. So I'll, I'll be way over the tip of my skis of talking about any of the other countries you mentioned, but I think China has put itself in a very difficult place, uh, which a friend of mine described as sort of pro-Russian neutrality. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so on the one hand, all of its political statements are quite pro-Russian, right? The, the entire crisis is, is caused by five waves of NATO expansion, um, common security. I mean, they, re they repeat a lot of Moscow's talking points in their own statements by the foreign minister, by Xi Jinping himself. Um, while at the same time trying to stand on a variety of principles, and of course there's a huge contradiction here because a lot of those principles include sovereignty and territorial integrity and, and non-interference and, and so on and so forth. But China, um, so on the one hand, they want to, I mean, politically, I think you know, they, they have come quite close to, to Russia in the last few years, and we saw that in the February joint statement. On the other hand, um, they don't want anything to do with trying to, to, to actually get directly involved in the conflict, much less or brokering an agreement. I think, one, because it would probably end badly, and so it, it would just become the object of criticism, right? So it's not like a high chance of success, and they don't have a lot of independent leverage, I think, to bring to bear, especially given the position that they've taken with the Russians. And then secondly, I think you know, they, they just see it as... as um, or, or a second thing I would say is, if you look at the February 4th joint statement, right, which, you know, which I call the list of, uh, of shared grievances with the United States... Um, it, it, it was most uh, sort of reticent on two issues, Taiwan and on Ukraine. Now, Taiwan was mentioned um, uh, by name once, uh, but the Russians simply repeated, in, or the, the statement in one sentence simply repeated um, uh, previous Russian positions about one, the one China principle. Ukraine itself was never mentioned by name, right? Um, so lots of these other grievances are, mu are much broader and in other areas, which I, I take to sort of mean that, that China doesn't, uh, or Russia, don't want to get closely involved in issues that could bring the other into a war with uh, the United States, uh, because this is what could happen in Ukraine or what could happen in Taiwan. And so, so, so they're, but they're very happy to sort of provide the kind of diplomatic support. And in my more cynical moments, and many of you know I'm not terribly cynical, but in my more cynical moments, you know, from some perspective, right, the more that the United States and Russia are tied down in Ukraine, Right, the, the less pressure that China faces, uh, mm -hmm. and pressure has been bearing down on China pretty hard uh, in terms of uh, sort of U.S.-China relations, and, and, and as well as um, sort of kind of Europe relations. And so this is—I don't think they have a chance to sort of repair those ties that have been damaged. I think China has engaged in sort of re re repeated sort of miscalculation in terms of the effects of its own policies. But nevertheless, right, like um, 9/11. Like the invasion of Iraq, right? 
that when there's a major international crisis in another part of the world that that involves the United States even indirectly in the way that this one does, it does sort of reduce uh, pressure on, on U.S.-China relations, which means that on the one hand, China doesn't want to see like long-range instability in, in, in the international markets and other things, but on the other hand, I think it's, you know, in some ways, like, they don't have a strong incentive in their own narrow interest to sort of bring about a rapid uh, resolution because ties with the U.S., they believe, I think, are not going to recover no matter what they do on Ukraine, and, and they don't want to get too sideways uh, with Russia. And so I guess I, I you know, thinking of the other countries, they have, they have less leverage, right? China has the most leverage um, uh, of all the ones that you mentioned. So I, I think it does come down to, to uh, you know, as Barry was sort of mentioning earlier, the, the moment that might arrive on the battlefield and something that can be negotiated and and, and encouragement from 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 countries that Ukraine is more heavily sort of relying on to sort of help shape that moment in a way that is, is stable. But that's my bit on China. Um, um, other closing comments from anyone on the panel? Anything you wanted to say that you didn't get to say or anything that you said you wish you didn't say? Everything has been said has been said. Thanks to everyone for tuning in online. I'm sorry I did not get to all of your questions. I did see the hands there. I also know I didn't get to everyone in the room, um, but I think it was a really terrific discussion. And please join me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.